I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light On, Light Through, episode 130, Survival of the Media Fit. Well, as some of you may know, I've devoted most of my life to studying the evolution of media. In fact, for my doctoral dissertation, Human Replay, a Theory of the Evolution of Media, which I wrote back in 1978, I came up with a theory, a name for the theory of media evolution that I was developing. I called it an anthropotropic theory. Anthropo meaning human, tropic meaning towards. And my idea was that as media evolved, they became increasingly human. For example, black and white photography evolved into color photography. That's not surprising because we see the world in colors, not in black and white. Or the telegraph was replaced by the telephone. Not surprising either because we don't communicate in dots and dashes. We communicate with words and that's what happens when we talk on the telephone. But one of the problems I ran into when I was first developing this thesis, which turned into my doctoral dissertation, is how do I account for why some media survived over the years, even though newer media came up and seemed to be all set to replace them, while other media were vanquished by the appearance of new media? For example... Silent movies, although they were amazing and lauded by everyone when they first began to be shown in theaters, and this continued through most of the 1920s, were totally replaced by talkies or talking motion pictures, beginning with Al Jolson's The Jazz Singer in the late 1920s. Silent movies did not survive the advent of talking motion pictures. But on the other hand, radio, which deals with sound only, not only survived, but has thrived by and large for most of the years, the decades in which television replaced radio in so many ways. So this was one of the issues I dealt with in my doctoral dissertation back in the 1970s. It's also relevant now because it's interesting to consider the competition between television and Twitter as which one is the primary medium, which one is the cutting-edge medium when it comes to politics nowadays. It looked a few years ago with the advent of Donald Trump, who has been so effective on Twitter, that Twitter might be replacing television. On the other hand, with governors and the president appearing on television, some governors sounding and looking great on television, other governors, and including the president of the United States, sounding and looking not so great, it seems that television may have reclaimed its preeminence as the most important medium in communicating to the public about the COVID-19 pandemic. 
So I talked about that to my class, my Fordham University class via Zoom this morning. I'm going to share with you that lecture right now. It's about 45 minutes. And again, I have to apologize for the sound quality, but basically this is what comes off of Zoom. But I do think you will be able to understand most of my words. So enjoy the lecture. The Light on Light Through podcast. And I left off yesterday with the point about how television, which before COVID-19, had in many ways been surpassed by social media as the cutting-edge media. And you may recall we talked about this really on the first Zoom lecture. I talked to you about the fact how presidents of the United States from JFK through Obama were television presidents and how Donald Trump is, is really the first Twitter president. But COVID-19 has brought television back, and that's why it's no coincidence that Trump has gone back on television. Trump's been tweeting all along, but he decided, uh, after he received uh, understandable criticism for his musing about whether it made sense to drink Lysol and somehow get sunlight into our bodies, that was one of his last live press conferences, and his advisors told him, you know what, stay off the you know, television camera because you're saying insane things. But in the last week or so, his advisors have been saying something different, which is, hey, Joe Biden is doing very well in the polls. Joe Biden is doing well, not only in the polls, but in polling in Republican states. So Texas which is by and large a Republican state, uh, now has Joe Biden slightly leading Donald Trump. And in many states in the South, which previously had been strongholds for the Republican Party, uh, Joe Biden is doing very well there also. So one of the things that his campaign managers have told him is get back on television. And this, I think, again, is a result of television making a comeback because in this age of the pandemic, people tend to want to look at television more than they want to look at Twitter. And I, I think the reason is pretty clear. It's because even though Twitter is easier to look at, and even though we can all get video on our Twitter, obviously, it's not a shared experience, right? It's just you looking at your phone. You can then uh, tweet to somebody on your phone, and in that sense, it's a social shared experience. But television is different. Television, all the people in the room are looking at the screen. It's a big screen. And as I mentioned yesterday, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York showed that you can use television very, very effectively in this uh, pandemic to communicate with the people, tell them what's going on. And that's why I think Trump has gone back uh, on television. But there's an important media principle here, and we've been talking about media principles. When you study media, it's good to have a set of principles that can help you understand 
what's going on in the media environment. And here the important principle is old media, even though they may be surpassed and even replaced by newer media, rarely disappear. Instead, what usually happens is they get pushed into the background, but they're still there. And then often they unexpectedly become important again, which is what has happened with television, or they remain a primary medium doing something different than what they originally did. And in fact, if you look at the whole history of media evolution, there are very few media that ever got completely replaced and eliminated. Uh, One example would be silent movies. So when motion pictures were first invented, when they first became popular in the 1920s, there was no talking in the movie. And uh, actually, they were called silent movies. They weren't silent in that you could have music in the movie, but you didn't hear people talking in the movie. And then talkies were perfected. And it was in the late 1920s that the first talking motion picture was distributed to movie theaters. It was a movie called The Jazz Singer. It featured Al Jolson who in fact was a jazz singer. And he, in that movie, sang, and you could hear him sing. And not only that, he talked uh, in the movie. And, you know, like everything else, it was the first time that uh, a talking motion picture had been widely distributed in theaters. The distributors weren't sure what was going to happen. Well, what did happen is the movie became a, a box office success. It did a huge amount of business. And after that, no one looked back. Uh, Everyone decided to make uh, talkies or motion pictures in which you could hear people speaking. So the silent movie is an example of a medium which was not only replaced, but pretty much wiped out and obliterated. Uh, You occasionally see like a silent movie made to make an artistic statement, but it's not part of the mainstream of motion pictures and really hasn't been since the 1930s. But the more usual example of what happens when a new medium uh, comes along, uh, that happened in the 1950s, and the two players in that situation were radio and television. And... I've already talked to you about the importance of radio in the 1930s and 40s, FDR's fireside chat. Uh, By the 1940s, just about everyone in the United States and in most countries in the world had radios, if not in their home, in some kind of place where they could listen to it publicly. Meanwhile, television had been invented in the late 1920s, but it didn't really catch on as a mass medium in the 20s or the 30s or the 40s. And it wasn't until the late 1940s that the cost of buying a television set became low enough that 
the average American could afford a television set. So I actually uh, grew up and I never knew a world in which there wasn't television. And my parents were middle class. And so before I was born, they had a television in the 1950s. They weren't rich, uh, but they weren't, um, you know, all that poor either. They were somewhere in the middle. But that was typical. The American middle class and then pretty quickly all Americans had television sets. And I already mentioned the political impact of that once again in the 1960 election in the JFK-Nixon debate in which Kennedy wins that debate because over 90% of Americans then have televisions and JFK looked great on television, cool, relaxed, whereas Nixon looked nervous, uh, he was sweaty, he declined to uh, have makeup put on. By the way, even to this very day, if you ever go into a television studio and you're going to be on television, always say yes if they ask you, you want uh, us to put some makeup on you. Because the television lights are very hot. And if you don't have makeup, you wind up looking sweaty and uncomfortable. And that's exactly what Nixon looked like in 1960. So as a political medium... By 1960, television had replaced radio. Some people thought by 1960 that radio would go the way of silent movies. In fact, in the middle of the 1950s, there's a now famous cartoon in the New Yorker. You can look this up on Google, just search on radio cartoon, New Yorker magazine in which you see a father is taking his son up to the attic of his home. And in the attic, there's a big radio. And the son is standing there looking at that radio wide-eyed. And he's saying, Daddy, what's that? And that was a pretty shocking cartoon in the 1950s because in the 1950s, everyone knew what radio was. But this was the... New Yorker cartoons way of saying television has not only replaced radio, but it's going to banish radio to the attic where no one will even know about. But that cartoon proved out to be wrong. And here is what the people who thought radio was dead did not count on. It's something you've all heard of. It's something that one of you is doing her research in. It's something called rock and roll. Rock and roll music. And here's how that wound up saving radio. Saved radio to the extent that radio, even after television, was bringing in more money than it had before television meaning it was having more commercials, more sponsors. And it was all because of rock and roll music. So first of all, you all know what rock and roll or rock music is. Uh, someone, uh, I think uh, it was Caridad, 
but correct me if I'm wrong, pointed out in her research that um, almost all of our popular culture in the United States comes from African Americans. And that's certainly true when it comes to music. Because in the 20th century, the three most important kinds of new music that basically took over the United States and the world were in the first part of the 20th century, jazz. In the second part of the 20th century, rock and roll. And then at the end of the 20th century, going into the 21st century, rap and hip hop, all three of those kinds of music originated in African American communities in the United States. Now, here's something interesting. Uh, you know, not many people know this. I don't know how many of you know this. Uh, the word jazz. Uh, was African-American slang for orgasm. So jazz, orgasm, you know, sort of sounds the same. And so African-Americans used to chuckle in the 1930s when they heard white people saying how much they loved jazz because that was the word in African-American slang, uh, not initially for music. And the same exact thing happened with rock and roll. And not many people know that either. Rockin' and rollin', if you think about it, was slang, again, in African-American communities for having sex. So again, in the 1950s, a lot of white people saying, hey, we love to rock and roll. And uh, that was something that was a joke, an inside joke in African-American communities because of what it meant. But one thing about jazz is it, it was very important culturally, but it did not quite become a mass phenomenon in the first half of the 20th century. People who love music were into jazz, but the general populace in the first half of the 20th century, they were more into show music, pop music, Cole Porter, Jerome Kern, uh, you know, show music, Broadway music, that kind of music. But rock and roll, although it began in African-American ghettos, jumped into the mainstream unexpectedly in the 1950s. And that happened because of radio. And back in the 1930s, radio played jazz, but for the most part, radio was just, well, there were sitcoms on radio, there were detective story serials. Music was a part of radio then, but it wasn't the mainstay of radio. But by the 1950s, radio was losing its content. As a matter of fact, many shows which were on radio by the 1950s just jumped over to television. And, you know, some of these shows you may or may not have heard of. Jack Benny was a comedian, famous comedian. He had a great radio show on CBS radio. By the early 1950s, CBS said to Jack Benny, hey, you know what? Let, you know, let's bring you on to television. You can reach a lot more people. So Jack Benny said, sure. For a couple of years, he had both his radio show and his television show. But by the mid-1950s, 
Jack Benny was on television and he had an enormously successful television show. Gunsmoke, I don't know how many of you have heard of that name, was one of the most successful shows ever on television. Uh, I think it still holds a record somewhere for the number of years it was on or the number of episodes, but it's right up there with the most successful shows ever on television. It was a Western show, but what a lot of people don't know is it was also a successful show on radio. And what's interesting, especially about that show, is that the star of Gunsmoke on television, uh, the character's name was Matt Dillon which later a movie star adopted that name. But the actor who played it was a guy by the name of James R. Ness. He was like a very rugged, good-looking guy, you know, a typical, like, Westerner, and, you know, had a great voice, a great look. But a really interesting thing is that the guy who played the same character, Matt Dillon, uh, on radio was like a big fat guy who didn't look at all like a sheriff, but he had a great voice. So he sounded like a sheriff. And when the show went from radio to television, the people who were doing the show said to the guy who was doing the radio, Hey, look, you know, you know, you did a great job on radio, but you obviously can see you don't look like a sheriff. So we will, unfortunately have no choice but to replace you with somebody who does look like a sheriff. So that's what happened to radio. And that's why people thought radio was going to die because all of these radio shows migrated to television. But this happened in several American cities, but we'll look at one city in particular, the city of Detroit the city where the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame exists right now. And the reason why the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Detroit, um, and actually uh, it was in Detroit for a short period of time, uh, it really now is in Cleveland, so let me just correct that. The reason why, for the most part, it's been in uh, Cleveland is uh, because... Uh, although Detroit was famous for the Motown sound and still is famous for that, Cleveland was the place where a disc jockey by the name of Alan Free began doing something on radio that no one had ever done before. So let's take a little time machine trip back to Cleveland, Ohio, in the 1950s. And let's uh, focus in on a conversation that Alan Free, a disc jockey, is having with the program director of his radio station in Cleveland. And here's roughly what the conversation is about. The program director said, Alan, thanks for coming in uh, to see me. You know, I don't know how much longer we're going to be able to stay in business. Uh, you may need to start looking for another job. Uh, 
if I were you, I wouldn't look for it in radio because radio all over the place is losing listeners. People are watching on television what they used to be listening to on radio. And Alan Freed said, yeah, I know that. But I have an idea. I have, I think, a way that we can put something on radio that Americans will love and that they are not finding on television. Well, the program director said, I'm all ears. What did you have in mind? And Alan Freed said, well, you know, we have a bunch of clubs here in Cleveland, and uh, I've been going to some of these clubs for the last few months. And I have to tell you, there is a new form of music out there. It comes out of the African-American ghettos. They call it rock and roll. And I'm telling you, it is a really cool, infectious, great kind of music. The program director says, okay, uh, you know, I haven't heard it. I'll take your word for it. But what does that have to do with this station? Alan Freed said, well, I know this sounds like uh, an extreme thing to do. But what I suggest you do is change your programming. And instead of playing whatever it is that you are playing, Let's start playing some rock and roll right here on the station. The program director said something like, you must be out of your mind. You're smoking too much weed. There's no way our listeners are going to be interested in rock and roll. You know, we appeal to white middle class listeners. We appeal to kids in the suburbs. They're not fans of rock and roll. Alan Freed said, well, why don't you come to a couple of these clubs with me over the next couple of weeks? And I think you'll see in the audience, there are not only are African-Americans in the audience, there are white people, white kids in the audience as well. Anyway, to make a long story short, the program director agreed to let Alan Freed begin playing some rock and roll songs on his show. And the rest, as they say, is history. Because that radio station didn't die out. That radio station survived and began thriving because as soon as kids found out that this was a station on which you could hear rock and roll, that's all they wanted to listen to. Alan Freed became such a big name as a disc jockey, that he was hired by a New York radio station, WINS, which now is an all-news station, but back in the 1950s was a station that also played rock and roll. And here I can tell you, when I was just a little boy in the late 1950s, I remember listening to Alan Freed on WINS, and I thought it was like the coolest thing in the world. And what then began to happen is, although you had African-American artists like Little Richard, Fats Domino, Big Mama Thornton, who had the first uh, recording of You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog, it was actually a song that was criticizing a man, uh, You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog, she's telling him, a guy, you ain't never caught a rabbit, and you ain't no friend of mine. 
uh, that song, as everybody knows, was covered by an unknown singer by the name of Elvis Presley. And the record almost immediately became a million seller. And what this did is radio stations all across the United States and all across the world threw out their old format. They said, forget about trying to compete with television. We can play rock and roll. And that's what happened to radio. And that's why, even though by 1960, as a political medium, radio had been replaced by television. But as a popular cultural medium, radio was able to carve out a niche for its own audience. And that audience encompassed millions and millions of people. And so radio is one of the best examples in media history of how a medium does not become wiped out when a new medium is introduced, but instead gets pushed into doing something a little different. And in the case of radio, by the 1960s, radio stations were making more profit in terms of the ads and the sponsors that they had than they ever were back in the 1940s. And by the 1960s, most radio stations were playing rock music. But I want to delve a little deeper into understanding what happened with radio. Because although rock and roll was the content, it was the medium of radio, what it did, how people took radio in, that enabled rock and roll to have that enormous impact on radio and the world. So what is it that radio does? Well, it broadcasts sound. So what does radio appeal to in terms of our perception, our ears? So let's just think about this for a minute, ears. As you all know, we don't have that many senses, that many ways of perceiving the world. We have touch, right? Uh, we have taste, we have smell, we have eyes, and we have ears. That's pretty much it. And television, once again, to go back to that 1960 debate, JFK won that debate because our eyes, the eyes of people who saw JFK and Nixon on television, liked what Kennedy looked and unfortunately for Nixon, people who heard the debate on radio liked what Nixon sounded like, but many more people saw the debate on television than heard the debate on radio. Music, rock and roll, although you can have a visual component, you know, even in the 1950s, there were movies made uh, about rock and roll singers. Elvis Presley himself became a movie star. But obviously the main way that music gets to us, and in fact the only way uh, it gets to us, uh, you know, at the beginning usually when we first hear a song, is through our ears. And it turns out 
that our ears can do things that our eyes cannot do. So here is what I mean. And when you study the media, and this also comes from Marshall McLuhan, who spent a lot of time talking about the ear versus the eye in terms of human perception. So first of all, if you think about vision, you only see what you're looking at, right? So right now, I can't see what's in back of my head. You actually can see what's in back of my head, right? Because the camera is in front of me. So you see me talking and you see what's in back of my head. But I can't see that, except that I can see my image here. But if I was talking to you in a classroom, if this wasn't a video, I wouldn't see what was in back of me. You would, because you'd be looking at me and everything in back of me. So the point is, all we see with our eyes is what we look at. We do have the expression, listen to something, which is the equivalent of looking at something. But even that, it's interesting to think about look at something rather than look to something. That, in a way, is getting at the fact that you have to be looking right at whatever it is you are looking at. You can't see out of the back of your head. But sound is something that you can perceive on a 360-degree plane. In other words, our ears hear everything in the environment. So sound is a much more encompassing environment. Not only that, we're always immersed in sound in a way in which we're not always immersed in vision. So for example, it's now 10.44 in the morning. 10 hours from now, 12 hours from now, 10.44 p.m. It's going to be totally dark here in the New York area. In other words, we won't be able to see as well then as we can see now outside. But as far as sound is concerned, if you think about it, the world grows dark every night, but it never, ever really grows totally silent. There's always sound out there. And as a matter of fact, there's something in many ways even more interesting about sight versus sound, which relates to television versus radio and why radio survived. If you think about it, we all have eyelids, right? And what do we do with our eyelids? Well, we close our eyes. And in particular, we close our eyes when we sleep. But we can close our eyes anytime if we want. What happens when we close our eyes? Well, we don't see anything. So if you close your eyes now, whatever it is you're doing, you won't see anything. You open your eyes, you see something. We don't have ear lids, right? So in the natural world, the only way you can shut out sound is to put your hand over your ears, your hands over your ears. It's not very efficient. And that's because 
you could say that nature did not intend us to be able to shut off sound. We didn't evolve to easily shut out sound the way we evolved to easily shut out light. Not only that, as I'm sure you know, most of you have realized, most people do at some point or another, when you're sleeping, not only are your eyes closed, your eyes aren't even working, right? If somebody uh, were to, like you, you sometimes see like doctors in hospitals, you know, they want to check up on how a patient is doing and the person is sleeping and they gently peel back the eyelid uh, of the sleeping person. If that person is sound asleep and it doesn't matter whether you're a patient or totally healthy, when you're sound asleep, your eye isn't working. What does that mean in terms of the physiology of perception? It means the light wave is entering our eye and it is hitting the optic nerve, but the optic nerve is not working. The optic nerve is sleeping too. So, we are really totally shut off from light in the evening when we're sleeping. But now contrast that to hearing. I don't know how most of you woke up this morning. Uh, the way I woke up is I have like an alarm on my phone. And the alarm went off and I woke up. What does that mean? There was light in the room, but that didn't wake me up. But the alarm, the sound of the alarm woke me up. Why? Because the physiology of the ear is not the same as the physiology of the eye. And so how does the ear work? We have eardrums. Sound waves hit the eardrums. The eardrums vibrate. That's why, by the way, hearing is almost like a more central thing than seeing because there's literally something vibrating in our heads every time we hear something. So right now, when you are hearing my voice, we've, you of course don't realize this, no one realizes it, but what's going on is I'm speaking, there are sound waves coming out of your speaker and they're making your eardrums vibrate. Wow, so I have this magical power, I can make people's eardrums vibrate. But everybody has this power because that's the way we hear sound. It makes your eardrums vibrate. And unlike the optic nerves, which go to sleep when we're sleeping, the eardrums, which vibrate in our ear, they don't go to sleep. And in fact, what they do is they vibrate. There are audio acoustic nerves in back of the eardrum and when the eardrum vibrates it sends an acoustic signal through the auditory nerve that goes into our brain and unless we're in a coma or unless we drank so much that we're like utterly passed out unconscious in which case all right at that point if we're really passed out uh, even our 
acoustic eardrum system won't work. But if we're normally asleep, our ears are still working. And you might ask, well, I wonder how this developed, why it developed. And, you know, if you think about evolution, survival of the fittest, I know that two of you are bio majors, and I'm sure you've studied evolution. Well, what survival of the fittest is all about is those organisms that can best cope with their environments, they're the ones who survive. And so let's think, let's go back now, I don't know, let's just say half a million years uh, to, to Africa, uh, where all humanity originated. And let's imagine two groups of people, okay? One group of people had the same kind of hearing that we have. The other group of people, maybe, you know, it's half a million years ago, human beings were first evolving. Maybe their ears didn't work all that well. And there is a pack of lions or, you know, whatever dangerous animal in both of these areas. So one group, a man is standing as sort of a lookout and sees this pack of wild, hungry lions coming, and he runs back and he starts screaming to the village, hey, there's a group of hungry lions here. They're moving pretty quickly. Let's get out of here. The other group also has a guy, a lookout, or maybe it's a woman who knows and sees this, you know, similar group of hungry lions approaching, runs back, says the same thing. Hey, wake up. Let's get out of here. But here's the problem. The first group, pretty much most people in the village wake up and, you know, the parents grab their babies and, you know, they run away. Or maybe there are like some strong warriors in that uh, little village and they go out with their spears because they're going to keep the lions away from the village. But one way or another, that first village is okay. They're going to be okay because their acoustic system, their ears, even when they were sound asleep, warned them. The lookout was able to warn them. But now the other group, sadly, even though the lookout sees the lions come back and says, hey, wake up. And, and, you know, maybe if he's, if, you know, if he's like talking to someone, he can shake that person awake, but he can't quickly wake up everybody in the village. And so chances are, sadly, most people in that village are not going to survive. What does that mean in terms of evolution? It means that the DNA, the genes from that second group of people, they're not going to make it into the next and succeeding generations. But in contrast, the genes and the DNA from the first group of people, they're going to be okay. They basically grabbed up the kids, ran to a safe place, or took care of the lions because they got some warriors out there to stop the lions. So they're going to be okay. Those little kids are going to grow up, and they're going to have children, and they're going to have children, et cetera, et cetera. Well, guess what? All of us here today, we are descendants of that group, meaning that's the way our ears work. And 
because of that, our ears are very different from our eyes. And now to bring that back to radio, you can listen to the radio in the evening. Uh, you can listen to the radio when your eyes are closed. You know where else you and how else you can listen to the radio? You can listen to the radio when you are driving. And another way that radio and rock and roll became so important was through the car radio. And when we study the evolution of media and try to understand what's going on and, you know, will TikTok replace Twitter? Uh, will social media in general replace television? We always have to look not only at the media, but the context in which the media are perceived by us. So actually, car radios go back to the 1930s, but they weren't all that popular in the 1930s because, again, music was not the mainstream and the mainstay of radio. But by the 1950s, when people in radio stations around the country began picking up on the revolution that Alan Freed had started and began playing rock and roll music, a lot of that music was heard in automobiles. And if you think about it, here's why and how that worked. If you are driving a car and you have a television set uh, in the car or you even you know, look at your phone in the car and you're driving the car and you're busy texting and you're driving the car and you're busy texting, that's a dangerous thing to do. Years ago, before I was teaching at Fordham University, I was teaching in a school called Hofstra University out in Hempstead, Long Island, here in New York State. And, you know, I live up in Westchester, so I would have to drive over either the Whitestone or the Frog's Neck Bridge uh, and take uh, one of the highways to Hempstead. Anyway, one, uh, you know, late morning, I was driving to uh, Hofstra University, and... Uh, I, I pass a car and I look at the car and I see there's a woman in this car driving and I see she is looking at a mirror, not the even car mirror, but like a mirror in her hand and she's like putting makeup on. So here she, she's driving like about 60 miles an hour and like carefully putting makeup on, barely even looking at the road. So I don't know, maybe she had a television appearance uh, at some studio on Long Island and she was putting makeup on. But no, that wasn't it because they put makeup on uh, there uh, in the actual studio. But anyway, what I did as soon as I saw her is I drove as far away from her as I could because obviously that's not a safe way to drive. Neither is watching television if you're driving. Because again, the eyes can only look at one thing. The eyes are like a very monopolistic kind of perception. They're very selfish. They just look at one thing and they can't see anything else. The ears, however, are different. So although it is unsafe to be looking at anything other than the road, as you all know, when you're driving, it's not unsafe to listen to music. And I remember in the 1950s, 
you know, and to this very day, you know, you're driving along, uh, the windows are open, even better if you have a convertible and you're playing some loud music on the radio and the wind is blowing in your face. That is really a, a good experience. It's a very uh, satisfying physiological experience because you're listening to the music, you're hearing the sound, you're feeling the wind in your face, and it's totally safe because as long as you keep looking at the road. So you can like be singing, you can be like pounding, you know, the side of the car, keeping, you know, the beat. All that is fine and safe as long as you just keep looking in front of you. But the second you look at your phone, that's where it gets dangerous. So back to the 1950s and putting all these pieces together. Radio survives because it appeals to the ears, not the eyes. And by appealing to the ears, it appeals to something that you can make use of when you are looking at something else because the ears work independent of the eyes. Here's another time that we listen to radio. When we're taking a shower, right? So, you know, we're taking a shower, you can have the radio blaring. Uh, you know, it has, one thing has nothing to do with another. We, we're looking at different things while we're listening to the radio. So that's the, the media explanation for why radio survived. But the content that radio played was rock and roll music. And so the result of all of that is radio not only survives the advent of television, but it thrives. And to this day is still doing pretty well. Now, admittedly, eventually, with streaming on Spotify and Bandcamp and, you know, whatever you might listen to, Apple Music, radio is to some extent now at last taking a little bit of a beating in the acoustic area in a way that television was not something that was threatening radio. In other words, when it came to playing music, radio had it over television. But when it comes to playing music and listening to music, Spotify and any uh, site that allows you to stream, that is providing competition to old-fashioned broadcast radio. Uh, but I'm not going to talk any more about that. If you're interested, and, you know, again, I know one of you is doing something on the history of music, but if you're interested, the, the evolutionary thread of that goes from broadcast radio to mixtapes that people put on their cassettes in the late 1980s, early 1990s, to iPods, and then eventually to Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, etc., Etc. But all of that uh, is, I think, a great example which we should keep in mind when we're looking at the competition now of, first of all, different social media, one to another, and secondly, 
the competition between social media and more traditional media. And one of the points here that I've been sort of emphasizing all term, but I want to underline it again, is we should make no mistake about it. Media are always in competition. And I you know, talked about natural selection regarding uh, human beings. Well, media are subject to selection also. They're subject to human selection. We humans decide what media survive as media evolve. And we decide what media will make it on to the next generation, what media won't, what media will have to change what they're doing if they're going to survive. So... Media are always in competition. There are at least two levels of competition. There is what might be called the intra. Intra is like a fancy word for the inside one particular kind of media environment. So social media compete with each other. Are you going to use Instagram or TikTok or Twitter? That's one kind of competition. And then on a larger level, you have the competition of one media environment versus another. Are we going to watch television or are we going to use the more portable screens on our phone? And in both those cases, the competition is constant, it's daily, it's relentless. And the people who decide what will survive and what will not are us, the consumers. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. And as some of you may have noticed, I've been picking up the frequency of episodes that I'm putting out on Light on Light Through. And I'm beginning to think in this COVID age, when so many of us are so much in need of information and some of us cannot easily get to classes or libraries, that I'm going to continue this pace of episodes in this podcast, at least once weekly. So I hope you enjoyed what you just heard. I'll be back here within a week or even sooner with another new episode of Light On, Light Through. In the meantime, enjoy. Athens, 2042 AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Paul Levinson still code about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries.